This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, it's Giles here. What's your very first memory? We hope these conversations make you think back to your early days. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Welcome to another episode of Rosebud. My guest today is fitness and lifestyle guru and social media sensation Joe Wicks. From humble beginnings running boot camps in Richmond Park from the back of his bicycle, Joe Wicks has had a meteoric rise to success. He now has 10 Sunday Times best-selling books. Did you hear that? 10 Sunday Times best-selling books, 350 million YouTube viewers and is on a mission to get Britain fitter and healthier. I don't know why I asked him, actually. I'm envious of all this success. Anyway, during lockdown, his PE with Joe sessions were a vital sensation, and Joe broke the Guinness World Records for the largest YouTube livestream audience ever. I wasn't quite sure what to make of Joe, because I'm not really into PE, and I've had a few Sunday Times best-selling books myself, maybe half a dozen, but he's had ten, and he's half my age or less. He's on this mission to get Britain fitter, and I thought, hmm, is he going to be a bit of a holy Joe? He is a bit of a saint, but he's not a holy Joe. He's full of energy, charm. I liked him. I liked him a lot. We talked about Joe's childhood growing up in a loving but chaotic household in Epsom. Chaotic because Joe's dad struggled with addiction. You know, he was always asleep, he was always out of it, he wasn't really there emotionally. And then I asked Joe for his advice about how I can eat more healthily and stay away from the cakes. So, time now for a slice of Joe Wicks. Joe, the first question I want to ask you is about your first memory. What in your head is your very first memory from your entire life? I've never been asked this question, but I think I've got memories of being a young boy, um, basically like in my council, you know, we've been in a little council flat, it was very small, we all sort of lived on top of each other. And I've got memories of just kind of, basically my mum used to wash me in the sink and I've got this vision of my nan, because we had like a window where, you know, I'd be in the bar, I'd be in the sink getting a bath, and my nan came in um, with like a bottle of milk. She used to bring like bottles of milk around and stuff. So that's one of my first memories. And I always, I don't have a, I don't have a photo of it. You know, maybe I've been told the story, but I just remember sitting in the sink having a little bath, and my nan came in with like those old school glass bottles of milk to, you know, to give me for my bottle, I imagine. Must have been about one and a half, two maybe. Where was this flat? Where was this council flat? So that was in a place called um, Epsom, which is in Surrey. That's where I grew up. I grew up there with my um, my mum, dad and my older brother, Nicky. So they had us quite young. You know, my mum was 17, which had Nicky, and 19, which had me. So she was still a very young young girl herself, you know. And Describe her to me. What was she like? Why was she having children at 17? So my mum's got a you know pretty amazing story. Really. She, her name's Regella, which is um, kind of an, an Italian name. Her mum's Italian, so it's like, you know, from Italian and Spanish father, I think. Um, and yeah, you know, she's had a bit of a troubled kind of upbringing, quite a few challenges. And, you know, unfortunately, a relationship broke down with her mum and she got kicked out of home at 15. So my mum found herself in a squat, you know, in Epsom. Well, these sound like major challenges. Well, why was she kicked out of home? What was wrong? I suppose just, you know, 
loads of I mean it's one of these things I I understand now but at the time I didn't really know what was going on so my mum had like a lot of mental health issues and it stems from her you know childhood trauma she got you know her dad left when she was younger when she was a little kid and she was put into a care you know foster care home and stuff so lots of things happened um, and then when she left home she was living in a squat in Epsom met my dad and you know next thing you know she's pregnant so at 17 she had her first baby which is unbelievably young it's, this is so interesting because Epsom sounds like a really lovely part of the world you think of Epsom uh, this squat was where I mean I think it was um, somewhere around Epsom but you know there's always an empty building somewhere I'm sure oh. but um, she ended up living there with some friends and you know and they just moved in yeah she's just, 15 years of age and she moves in and she's living there what's she living off I mean I don't know all those details because you know she was so young I, I suppose I don't know you, you fend for yourself and just survive but you know she's been through a lot and she's very um, my mum's very loving and very sensitive and very very affectionate and very you know, she's very needy. She needs my love and needs my cuddles and needs to know we're close. And I, I can understand because she went through so much abandonment. You know, her dad left at two years old and her mum had to put her in a care home. She was in a foster care home for like two two years of her life. So we talk about this, you know, that childhood trauma affected her a lot because she's found it, she's found it really hard to bond with people and to have relationships. So, um, yeah, you know, childhood trauma really affects you as an adult, for sure. So age 15, she's living in this squat, and along comes your dad. Yeah, I mean, and it, you know, living in the squat, and I'm not sure if my dad was... Because my dad's, obviously, again, you know, my dad's... Whatever he's been through has affected him. And, you know, I grew up with a drug addict father, essentially, mm-hmm. so my dad was, a, you know, an addict. And I think, um, you know, again, maybe he had some stuff going on as a child, but whatever happened, he, he kind of dealt with it with drugs, and my mum dealt with it in other ways with eating disorders and, and extreme OCD in terms of cleaning. So the environment I grew up in was pretty chaotic, pretty pretty manic. Before we get to your chaotic childhood, I want to explore this a little bit further because it's, it's, it's fascinating, and it also is what made you... He was called Wicks, I assume. Yeah, Gary Wicks, so, yes. So he met, meets this beautiful girl. I imagine she is beautiful because she's Italian, Spanish, and clearly you are very handsome. So I imagine the looks come from her side of the family. Yeah, we can say that. Yeah, she's uh, very beautiful. And yeah. he arrives a few years older, uh, a bloke already with problems, even though he's still a teenager as well. They fall for each other, and she finds herself pregnant. Uh, do they get married? They never got married, my mum and dad, um, which in a way kind of I'm grateful because there would have been a lot of divorces. You know, it was a very turbulent relationship because my mum didn't have a father. So she wanted us to have a dad. So I think she tolerated a lot. I'm stuck in that relationship for 20 years of her life because she wanted us to have a dad, you know. And so, you know, because, you know, why would you stay in that relationship? It's a very challenging environment to be with an addict who's ultimately, you know, the drugs come first. Right. So it was difficult. But it's only now looking back at the childhood trauma they went through to understand why they became how they were you know and why these things can really affect you as an adult for years and you know my dad still struggles with his mental health my mum even the same you know so I've learned to kind of be more compassionate towards them I think he got on top of the drugs eventually he's yeah he's sober today he's clean he's sober he was a heroin addict essentially yeah he was on the on the hard stuff yeah pretty much so obviously smoking weed sniffing glue all that sort of stuff then he then he progressed on to heroin quite young and that took over his life, really. How does it affect you having a father who is a drug addict? Was he then a drug addict, even when you were a little baby? Oh, yeah, all through my life, you know. And I didn't really know at the time. But, yeah, you know, so I had an older brother called Nicky. He's 18 months older than me. Um, and then I come along. You know, we're living in a council flat. It's, it's pretty small. And, yeah, you know, I didn't know at the time what was going on because, you know, you're too young to sign of acknowledge that. But as I got a little bit older, I realised... You know, he was always asleep. He was always out of it. He wasn't really there emotionally. Um, he was there in the house, but not kind of emotionally available and just wasn't communicating because he's, you know, you're out of it sort of thing. So when was the first time you realised you had this troubled and troublesome father? What age would you have been, do you think, when you registered something's not quite right here? I suppose probably like five or six, just being at school and knowing that, you know, there's certain things I couldn't talk about. And then there was, you know, my mum's like OCD. And wh- why did you feel you couldn't talk about it? I just think back then, like, I suppose fear of, like, being taken away, I think, you know, I think, you know, understanding that... Oh, you mean if the teachers had heard about it? Yeah, I think, you know, you back you then... you might have been taken into care yourself? Yeah, potentially, and I think, you know, I just sort of knew I couldn't talk about certain things, you know, so when I went to school, like, I had to, like, block all that out and wasn't really talking about my emotions, and so I was quite a happy little boy, but I became an angry teenager when the, re- you know, when the relapses kept happening, because my dad would get clean, go to meetings, go to NA, go to a rehab, get clean, and I'd be like, right, we're back together, we're a family, but it was very unstable because... Then he'd just relapse and then he'd be kicked out and he'd be gone, you know. So, yeah, it was, it was tough. But, you know, I think one of the things I think back to is 
although it was chaotic and really dysfunctional, we had love and my mum and dad loved us and they told us, you know, we're sorry we're arguing, we're sorry this is the way it is, but we love you. And I think that really, when you're a child, as long as you've got that feeling of love and having a bit of self-worth, you can get through almost anything. When did you realise your mother had these OCD tendencies? I can never remember what OCD stands for. Obsessive compulsive disorder. And that could be with things like washing your hands for germs or having health anxiety. But for her, it was cleaning, right? So, And what triggers that? Why, why would somebody like her suffer from OCD? It's a control thing, isn't it? It's like, I'm going to control how I feel. I'm going to control by, by, by not eating or by binging on food so that, you know, food came into it. But the cleaning thing was like, she was just trying to clean and just like take control of something so as a kid growing up you know I had to make my bed I had to you know iron and clean clean my room and you know I'm talking a really young boy like five six years old hoover in the bedroom and making sure the bed was super tight like and and it was quite difficult because there's a lot of confrontation like, I didn't want to do that every day and I, did, I wanted to bring friends in and make noise and make mess but it was like an Ikea showroom like everything had a place everything would be pulled out two or three times a day the cupboards would be cleaned hoovering it was like Dettol and I remember that smell of like um you know, like TCP, that kind of chemical, like, and, and it's antiseptic kind of smell. So, yeah, it was just a really, it felt like a normal life, though. It was just like, I just thought, this is it, this is normal, you know? And you wanted to do it, of course, to please her as well. So you were, age five, pushing the hoover across your bedroom to make sure that the carpet was as clean as it could be. My mum's thing was, like, she was very house proud. So she would, I, honestly, I could go to school in the morning, and by the time I came home, my room was different. She'd wallpapered it. She'd change the bed sheets, the curtains, because she'd get like, you know, the curtain set, we get the stripy curtains, the bed sheets, the pillowcases, and then like, it would be completely different. And one day she, we came home and it was all black and white. It was like a black carpet, black and white stripy walls and like black and white bed sheets. So when I had to hoover, I laugh at this now, but imagine you've got the big bit of the hoover, you know, the big wide bit, which you mm. do the hoover in. She didn't let me use that bit because she wanted to see the lines in the carpet, like mm. almost like a felt tip pen. So, you know, she'd want to see the stripes, see that you've done it. So like mm. it's weird things like that, right? Which it would drive me mad. And I think, why am I doing this? And I didn't understand. And so for that reason, we argued every, we were always having confrontation. We were screaming at each other, slamming doors, you know, you know, punching walls and all this sort of stuff. So if I'd known earlier what was going on in their mind, but they also didn't know what was going on in their mind, to be fair. They didn't know they had mental health issues. I would have had a much happier childhood, I think, because I would have understood the complexities of their personalities and what they were going through to why that, that manifest, manifest in that way, I think. Who was the first member of your family outside your parents who you felt close to and safe with? I think it's my auntie Anna and my nan, so my dad's sister um, and my dad's mother. When things kicked off and my dad was used, you know, it was a bit chaotic, they'd send us over to our nans. So, you know, it's like a safe place. And yeah, and it was, you know, the irony is that I'm still really close to my nan now and I still have that connection where I do feel safe with her and I do feel like she, she really cared for us and, you know, she'd keep us warm and feed us and make sure we're okay. But yeah, it was just a, it was just a very chaotic home life because on one hand, You've got my dad who's like in and out of rehab and an addict. And then on the other hand is my mum who's, you know, d dealing with her own anxieties. And she couldn't go out in certain environments. You know, we could never, she would never go in a lift. We'd always have to walk up like flights of stairs. You know, you go to a shopping centre and she'd park at the top and like we'd have to walk up and down the stairs. She would never get in a lift. So all these little things that were just like weird and difficult to and understand how why. how did they cope with the money worries? Because obviously you were saying you had a car and she was redecorating your room. Where did the money come from? I mean, yeah, I suppose it's just like, you know, just scrimping and saving and, you know, it wasn't like she was getting expensive furniture mm. and expensive, like, wallpaper from expensive shops. It was more just like, I don't know, I suppose, Woolworths and TK Maxx and all those sorts of stores. And, you know, I had part-time jobs. So my dad was still working. My dad wasn't like a, a, a street addict. He was a functioning drug addict. So he was working. He was a roofer. So, you know, always been on the roofs, always been working. And who was your first friend outside the family when you were a little boy? Um, my first friend... I suppose it just would, would have been school friends. Just, you know, there's not one that sticks in my head, but, I, you know, I was a social little boy and I definitely had friends and I wasn't um, an introvert. So a lot of children in that environment become withdrawn, but I was actually quite, I suppose, hyperactive and ADHD and attention seeking because what was going on at home was quite chaotic. So when I went to school, I felt safe. It was like school was a good place to be for me because I could run around, I could be active, I could do sport. And that really helped me, I think, finding like my PE teachers and stuff. Was there a first teacher that was sort of number one in your list of people who were good to you yeah the one that pops out is a guy called mr williams who was like a young young pe teacher who kind of really understood me and he harnessed my energy because i couldn't sit still in maths and english always kicked out you know considered the naughty kid and i wasn't a naughty kid i was a nice boy but i couldn't focus i couldn't sit still and so when i got to pe like this guy was like really nice to me and he wanted me there and i always have that positive relationship where i think 
that was the inspiration for me to go go on to become a PE teacher. That was my goal. I thought, I'm going to do this. I love this job that he's doing. And You're into cooking now, food in a big way. Can you remember the first food that you loved when you were small? The first meal that sort of comes into your head and your, your nose. What is it? So we had a very unhealthy sort of start to our diet, but <laughs> I do remember um, these things called Findus Crispy Pancakes. Do you remember them? Mm-hmm. They were like pockets of um, cheese and ham in like a breaded, I don't know what it was. It's not even really food. It's completely processed. But I remember it just like going in the oven and then we'd have it with sort of potato smileys or um, waffles and beans. And that was kind of a staple kind of thing. I, I, in the 1980s, I, used, I did a commercial for waffles for, that you put in a toaster. And I remember we had those, those Findus things at the same time. Um, they were delicious, probably not very good for you. Yeah, so, they, were, they were just what you had. I mean, it was like pink ham and really weird, weird cheese and it's really hot and it used to sort of burn. But the smell was, I don't know, I, just, I remember that, I really remember those. And then alongside that, you know, it's things like picnics and sandwiches and crisps. And, you know, we used to go to Iceland and it would be like two for one. So you got to think about picky things you'd eat like chocolate and wagon wheels and sunny delight. It was just proper high. It was a 99% ultra processed diet for sure. Did you try to look after your parents? Sometimes children in this, these circumstances become almost the parents themselves because they realise that their parents are vulnerable and they feel they are responsible in some way. Did, did you look after them? I felt that then and I still feel that today. You know, I still feel like today I'm the one looking after them and worrying about them. And yeah, I think as a kid, when you have that kind of dynamic where you know if your dad gets caught using, he's out the door and then you feel bad for him and you feel sad that he's going to be lonely and really depressed and living with his mum back in a flat, you know. And so I kind of was protecting that a little bit. And then with my mum, you know, I could see when she was struggling because she just wouldn't eat, you know. You know, days would go by. She basically lived off of cigarettes and cans of Coke. She would drink 10, 12 cans of Coke a day, not eat, and she'd get really skinny. And, you know, I love that she's taking care of herself now because she does eat better. She's got into the, I think through me and the books and stuff, she's learned to cook. So when did you first realise in your head that smoking, for example, wasn't good for you? and that maybe just drinking non-stop Coke wasn't good for you. What age were you when you thought, this isn't right? I mean, I didn't think at the time. I knew smoking was bad, and I, I, I did really disliked it. And I remember just, my mum would go down, there was a, like a public communal kind of washing line, like where you'd hang your clothes to dry your clothes. And the, I remember her saying, oh, run up and get me cigarettes, Joe. And I'd, I'd hate the whole thing of like going up and picking up and carrying them. I used to pinch them out of my fingers, and I'd always throw them at her and be like, they're disgusting. I could never physically touch a cigarette but I could touch the box just about, you know, but that was it. You know, my mum was smoking cigarettes and my dad was probably smoking weed. Like I was just around it, you know, and um, they don't smoke anymore, you know, but it was one of those things me and my brothers talk about. We used to hate having to like, you know, like actually carry them. It's horrible. Were you a good friend of your brother? Did you get on well with him? Yes. Yeah, so my older brother, Nicky is, um, I said, 18 months older than me. We're really close. I mean, he's my best friend and he's also the CEO of the company. So he like, we work together, but also in terms of our bond, we're like, We've always sort of like been, um, he's like my garden, if you like, he's always protecting me, always looking out for me. And even back then he says to me, you know, I used to see and hear things that I would never want you to see and hear. So he'd protect me and, you know, just like always looking out for me. And he was very introvert and he bottled up his emotions. But now as adults, I think we talk more and we're more, we're, we're more open about how we feel. But yeah, he's, he's been a big part of my life, I think, and probably one of the most important parts of my life. Can you remember your first kiss, your first girlfriend? How old would you have been? I remember my first kiss, um... I was at Epsom, there was a place called the Rainbow Centre, it's a roller, it's a, it's a leisure centre and they had a roller disc on a Saturday for kids and stuff, so yeah, and we loved it, we were there every week, you know, we went on a little quads, we had our little socks, all our, our big little socks pulled up and big like baggy shorts and you know, your khaki pants and that. And how we, old are you about, roughly? I must be, I'm going to say 12 at this point, uh-huh. and yeah, um, the first kiss was basically at the roller disc, so a girl, she must have been a bit older, 14 maybe, was like, oh, do you want to... Mm. Do you want to come upstairs and we'll grab a drink and there's a little cafe there? And yeah, she just basically smacked it on, just laid it on me, smacked oh, it on me. Oh, yeah. good. She, she made the initial move. Yeah, I was, I was very, I wasn't confident. And also, you know, I was like, I had a long, I had a long ponytail. I mean, I looked, I looked like a girl. I was very feminine. And also, you know, I was nervous and she probably just went for it and went coming in and a bit like a washing machine type vibe. And I just went round and round and round and you thought, this is a bit weird. But yeah, it was still, it was fun. And I probably didn't kiss anyone for a while after that. And what's your first proper girlfriend that you actually, you know, went out with steadily for a while? My first proper girlfriend um, is a girl called Frankie that I went out with um, probably for a couple of years, probably from the age of about 15 to 17. 
Yeah, she was lovely, you know, really, really lovely girl. She's she's obviously moved on and got family and she's got kids and stuff. And were you an easy person to have as a boyfriend? Were you, in your, when you were a teenager, you were obviously quite gregarious. You were out being normal because home was not normal. You were behaving normally. What sort of a boyfriend would you have been? I've always been quite, um, yeah, I've always been like someone who's attached very easily. So like, and that's probably due to, due to my childhood and the abandonment of not, you know, just my dad just in and out and, when I do meet someone, I do fall in love and I do yeah. like, you know, I want to meet them and want to be with them all the time. And it's like... So quite, you make a complete commitment. Yeah, yeah. Commitment, You're saying yeah. I love you almost the first meeting across the crowd. Probably, fe- probably felt like that, yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sensitive. I'm quite affectionate. And um, I remember I had my own little card, little Vauxhall Nova. Little, God, when you, what age did you get that? 17, I got my first wow, car. So, the moment you were allowed to. So yeah, I remember just picking, you know, being able to drive and sort of go out for, not dinner, I wasn't going for dinner, but, you know, cinema or going for probably McDonald's back then in the day. And it was just like typical kind of you know young love romance really but um yeah I haven't had many relationships to be honest you know I've, I've been with Rosie now for um for seven years but before Rosie I was with a girl I met at 19 so I was with her from 19 to 29 I was with her for 10 years mm. so I I've not been someone who's always been single and been oh. out partying and meeting lots of girls I've never even as a young teenager it wasn't really my thing hello it's Giles here And I'm very happy to tell you that this series of Rosebud is sponsored by one of my favourite hotels in the world, the JW Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel on London's Park Lane. One thing for which the Grosvenor House Hotel is justifiably famous is its great room. This has hosted royal banquets, boxing matches, BAFTA award dinners, and was even the location for a Dua Lipa video featuring live horses. But during the Second World War, the great room was transformed. It was requisitioned by the War Office as a mess hall for U.S. Army officers. New American kitchens were installed, and 450 staff served up to 14,000 meals a day. The room is so big that there were over 1,000 officers at each sitting. In total, 5.5 million meals were served between 1943 and 1945. The Great Room is a piece of history, and well worth a visit when you come to the Grosvenor House Hotel, which I hope you will, because every single person who walks through the door at this hotel is treated as if they were royalty, or even as if they were an American president. And American presidents have stayed here. We're delighted that the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel are supporting this series of Rosebud. Do make sure you book with them next time you want a five-star experience in London town. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your first ambition is to be a PE teacher. Even as a boy, that's what you wanted. And why do you think you wanted that? Why, I mean, were, were you physical? Were you, because you're quite slight, aren't you? Yeah, you're, I'm not a not, big guy. I'm not like, and I wasn't super sporty. I wasn't like super competitive or like that. I wasn't like a great athlete. I, I was good at like cross countries and stuff, but it was more like how exercise made me feel and that it was my therapy. Like I wasn't talking, but I was exercising. And so that was a big part of my life. And then I think the positive male role models that were my PE teachers were, were inspiring people to me, you know, because they were like young, they were fun, they were, you could see they loved it, they enjoyed it. And I thought that what a nice career to have and to help young people enjoy exercise. And I've recently just come back from a tour of Ireland and Northern Ireland. I went all over Ireland and I visited um, 12 schools in four days. I did a workout with 10,000 children and I love it. So I'm, I've come full circle. I'm really doing what I love, which is getting kids moving, but just through, through the lens of obviously Instagram and YouTube and, and sort of that sort of stuff. But I don't know, I just get a lot of joy from seeing young kids enjoy movement and exercise because it's, 
if you if you instill it in them at a young age, it will change their lives, I think. Yeah. You left school aged 17? I left school at 16 and went to college for two years to become, you know, to get like a, a B-Tech diploma. And then from there, I went to St. Mary's in Twickenham yeah. for my to, degree. To be a proper PE teacher? Yeah, to, to do sports science. It's interesting, given that you have a pretty shambolic home life, that you were clearly very focused. You decided this is what I'm going to do, and you did it properly. You actually took the exams, took the courses, and got the degree. I yeah, mean, I had that just a clear path. Like, I'm going to, you know, go to college, get my B-Tech diploma. I'm going to apply for university I'm gonna have a year out I took a year out traveling and then when I came back I did that you know I did the course did the three-year course the only other thing I needed to do was the the one-year kind of um graduate training program or the PGC it's like an extra year of studying to become a teacher and I thought just before I do that I had one more little trip I went on a little bike ride across America with a friend of mine and I got home and I worked as a teaching assistant for a year to sort of see just to make sure and it was really tough and I found it really difficult and I thought you know what I don't have the patience I don't think I can be a PE teacher in a school I thought was really challenging and um, it kind of put me off and that then I went down the personal training route from that point. And you became a personal trainer that was your first the first step on this journey to you now being not just well known but internationally successful one of the most successful authors um, in the world well done you you sell yeah. literally millions of books it's amazing when did you first realize that things were changing what what made the change? I suppose it was just like I loved movement, I loved exercise, I wanted to do something with that energy and I thought, right, good options, personal training because I thought it's a low entry, a low entry point too. You don't need to do like years of studying and it was like a six week course. So um, I borrowed about two grand off my dad, which was a lot of money at the time for my dad to do the course. And I borrowed about fifteen hundred pounds off my mum to do the um, to get all my kit, like can, for boot camp. Can I congratulate them on having this money? So clearly, by then he'd cleaned himself up, and he yeah. was getting money from the roofing work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you yeah. know, enough. Never had, never had money. Like, never had their own like prop. Never owned their own house or had mortgages and stuff. But enough to like, you know, yeah, get by. To help and, you out. Yeah, and so it's, it's a lot of money, and I always struggled to pay him back. But in the end, I said, "I paid you back, Dad, didn't I?" And he said, "Yeah, you did." I think it was just that that little investment, and then just going right. I'm going to try it out, give it a go, and I launched my boot camp. I was doing outdoor classes and stuff, and I loved it from the start. I really loved helping people move, and I really liked getting people out out off the sofa, you know, off the sofa, in the park, doing their exercise. And I, I felt this connection between people. And then when I just sort of, with social media coming along, I just sort of took that same mentality online, if you like, with my videos, and then started reaching more people through that. And what was the first one that sort of went exponential? And suddenly, instead of doing a few things that were followed by a few people, uh, you really had a huge following. What, what, when was that moment? So basically, you know, when you open an Instagram account, you've got no followers. And when you start a YouTube channel, there's no one watching your videos. But the thing that kind of took took off was the, the lean in 15 concept, which was a 15 second video on Instagram. And I was sharing a 15 minute meal. So I called it lean in 15. It was like a healthy recipe. And I would obviously throw it in the pan. I don't know if you remember the videos, but I'd say, right, in with a Lucy B. Lucy B was coconut. I'd say, in with a Lucy B, throw in the midget trees, add some rice, little bit of chicken, bit of soy sauce, fresh chili, Bosh, that right there is lean in 15. And so I've got made a chicken stir fry, right? And so that format was so quick and digestible and it didn't take a lot of effort for me to make that I was just doing it every day, breakfast, lunch and dinner. I was repeating like, you know, just the, just the repetition of like putting it up and um, it, 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 it built and grew. And then obviously that led to the book deal. But, you know, when we signed that book deal, you know, no one was thinking you're going to sell millions of books. It was really like, you know, let's just give it a go and see what happens. But it became this thing where people go, you know, I trust this guy and I like his recipes and, it looks fun and I can have a go. And I, I got a lot of people cooking because of that. And did, do you think any that changed you? Were you a different person as a result of the success than you had been a year before? It changed my life in many ways because, you know, I signed a book deal. It wasn't like a huge advance, but when them royalties checks came in, it, was, it changed my life in a heartbeat, you know, because I could support myself and my whole family within the space of 12 months when the book came out. I don't think it's changed me as a person. You know, and a lot of people might think, well, surely, you know, when you're famous, you've got loads of followers that you're suddenly like rolling with celebrities and going to red carpet events. But I don't, I don't live that life. You know, I've always lived quite a simple life. I've got the same friends, the same fa- you know family that are around me, and I think that's kept me humble. And it's just, um, it's allowed me to kind of keep my feet on the ground. I think through the whole thing. Can you remember the birth of your first child? Yes. So my little daughter Indy was born um, in Kingston Hospital. Um, we didn't know what she was going to be like. You know, and it was very exciting and. I just remember being there and, you know, when, when she came out, obviously that, that's happening and she comes out and I just looked at Rosie and I went, it's a girl. And 
just burst into tears. She's sort of laughing and crying at the same time because we were so excited. We were convinced it was going to be a boy. And, um, you know, ever since that moment, I, f- I feel like a lot more content, like that anything I've achieved or anything that I do isn't really as important as just like being a dad and being a parent. And, you know, what I've learned from my father is, you know, when things are tough, you don't have to run away. And, like, you know, you can be, you can be present and you can work through it and you can, you can give your child stability because that's all you really want as a kid is like to feel like everything's stable and that your family are there for you. So, yeah, I've, you know, I've learned from my mum my, 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 my and dad from both, both of my upbringings from both of them you've learned from them and from the the bitter experience of some of your childhood that's why you're trying to make your children's childhood so secure you've got three now what are they what are the three of them called so india's five um marley my little boy is three and then my little baby girl is called lenny and she's one so i'm right in the middle of it and there may be more children you know god willing if she if everything happens to plan we'd love another baby yeah we even though my little daughter's one it's like i don't feel satisfied i feel like you know, it can't, she can't be my last baby. I love the first few weeks when they're, you know, sleeping on your chest and they're brand new and you're holding them all the time and they're little, like, carriers and stuff. So, yeah, we, we definitely want another one. I think we'll have a fourth and then we'll have a break and see if we want to go for number five. But the, the idea is to at least have one more if we can. Good. Well done, you. You'll find as the years go by, it gets more exhausting. Yeah, I can imagine. No, uh-huh. it's even now, like, you know, with a broken sleep, it's, it's affecting my energy like to especially to become like the body coach i've got to be very energetic and be up here working out and inspiring everyone it's definitely getting harder and you homeschool them which is unusual why do you do that so yeah obviously it doesn't affect um the, the little one. ones yet but indy went to nursery and my little boy goes to nursery as well he goes to forest school which he loves but with indy we put her in school for for, for the first year she loved it you know she loves school it's great but we we love traveling together and we love being together as family so for our lifestyle right now, we just thought, let's just homeschool for the year, see how it goes. So we've unregistered from school. We don't see it as a stressful thing, although it is annoying sometimes getting her to focus, but we kind of enjoy the process of learning and teaching them. So, Does it worry you that they won't be socialising in the way that, I mean, one of the advantages of going to school, as well as having professional teachers, is you're having to cope with 20, 30 other kids and learning how to find your place in a community. Yeah, that's Whereas definitely the... you're cosseting them in this lovely cocoon which maybe you have created because you felt you lacked it yourself. You're going to give them all the love, the hugs, the here we are focused on you. But there could be a downside to that. I don't know. I'm just posing. Yeah, the no, question. I definitely. And it used to be the thing that Rosie used to say, and Rosie's mum used to say as well. There's the first kind of thing was because I used to suggest it. What about if we homeschool? How do you feel about that? And they're like, no, they need to be socialising. And obviously, my kids are super social, and they they still have a lot of. Um, friendship groups they do like after school clubs so you know gymnastics and football and all that so they're getting that element of that and on days off you know we're usually going to places like the farm or the soft play and there's always loads of kids around so yeah definitely that i think you know i think we did it at the right time because if, if, if she was a bit old if she was seven eight nine years old you know and they've really got that social network yeah I, I would find it different i probably wouldn't do it i think it'd be harder but as a five-year-old girl you know she says you know oh, i can't wait to um go on holidays we're going back to santa monica tomorrow and so you know, it's, it's things like that. You can't really do that when you've got the, the school calendar because you don't have to miss out on those things. So, again, I don't think it's a forever thing. I think maybe another year, see how we go, and then, you know, potentially slot, slot her back in. But we're definitely keeping her up to, like, a level so that she's not super behind on, on the academic stuff. What's the first serious you, mistake you've made in your life? The first serious mistake? Um, let me think. I haven't done had any real big blunders that I've gone, oh, that was a real error on my judgment, but... I think maybe, you know, in terms of um, the business, you know, when the hardest thing about business is sometimes you hire people who are amazing and other times you hire people who aren't great and other times you hire too many people and you've got to let some go. So the hardest thing I've been through emotionally and kind of in terms of like the business and the journey that I've been on has definitely been having to like let people go that weren't right, you know, because me and my brother are very sensitive, very emotional and, you know, we keep people on as long as we can. But sometimes, so you've you know, created this business empire that's kind of Joe Wicks International. What's it called? So it's the Body Coach Online Nutrition, which is essentially um, a tech company that focuses on fitness and health through an app, like it's a fitness app. Yeah. Um, and obviously, this massive boom, and we hired loads of people, mm-hmm. and then suddenly, like you know, the the economic the market's changed, and like you've got to let people go. And so we're not we're not cutthroat businessmen in that sense. Like we can't really do that. So you know, we want to make sure people are okay and they're happy when they leave. But yeah, it was tough. I think to let people go. Like, that's not easy. And this came about because you became a national hero with the pandemic, didn't you? Well, unknowingly and unwittingly, yeah, I did this live stream of workouts called PE with Joe, which was a, oh. a live PE workout every day on 
on YouTube. And um, the and first how long th- did you do it for? Well, I did the first lockdown was 18 weeks. Yeah. And the second lockdown, I did something. I think I did three days a week. I sort of cut down. I, I hung, I retired on Monday and a Wednesday. <laughs> and then, and then on the final lockdown, I did like pre-recorded workouts. I still filmed it, but just aired them like on demand. Um, and yeah, it was exhausting, but it was amazing because I got 100 million people moving. Like that was how many people took part. There was like, well, 100 million views on YouTube. Um, and yeah, it was... Uh, That's my- fantastic. 100 million views on YouTube. Well done you. It was, yeah, it was and, mind-blowing. I didn't expect did, that. Did, did you feel it was mind-blowing or did you just get on with it? I mean, did you lie in bed at night thinking, oh my God, tens of millions of people have done this today, just today, and I was dancing about, prancing about, and they're doing it too? I didn't really think at the time how big a deal it was until it ended, you know, because I, I, set, I set, set the workout live on the Monday and, you know, there was like nearly a million live streams and it was only... And I was just kind of working for it, distracted, you know, just every day getting up, doing it. But at the end, when it ended, that's when I really kind of saw the impact and I felt the impact because I had a lot of um, cards and letters and things sent to me that I stopped and read every single one. And that was a wave of emotion. And that was quite emotional to see that because I realised how much it meant to people. It wasn't just me like bouncing around the living room. Actually, I was really helping people with their mental health and got them through a proper sticky time, you know, proper rough time for them. And you got an honour as well, didn't you, along the way? Yeah, along the way, I got this email, right? I think it was an email, yeah. And it said, um, someone would like to offer you an MBE. Like, are you interested enough? I thought, is this a wind-up? You know, this can't be real. But it was an official letter or an email. So I said, oh, yeah, I'd love to. Because some people, apparently, you can turn them down. I don't know why you would. But I was like, yeah, I'd love an MBE. It'd be amazing. So, you know, me and my brother, Nicky, I could take one guest. And I thought, look, I can't take my mum and then not my dad. I was thinking, should I take Rosie? But then I thought, you know what? It just hit me like a lightning bolt. It's Nicky, because... Nikki, my older brother, he was in my ear through every workout. So every morning, you know, for 18 weeks, when I was doing the to camera stuff and being on, on the actual YouTube video, Nikki was in my ear and reading the comments because they were flying in these comments. So Nikki would say, right, shout out for James in Brighton, oh little, little Kenny up in Ireland. And oh. so it was, our, it was our thing. And I said, you know, look, I want it to be me and you. And we went together, went to, went to the Windsor Castle turned up in an uber we just jumped in an uber right and we get down the long walk and everyone's getting out of like mercedes and all these lovely like yeah s-class mercedes and like bentley's and rolls royce we just jumped out of an uber like <laughs> we were like should have like made more of an effort here but we walked in you know you work through all these rooms i don't know if you've been inside windsor castle but it's yeah. epic like you start in a room like this like a nice low ceiling and then every time you go through the rooms get bigger and the, <laughs> the roofs get taller and by the end of it you're like in this room with like a 50 foot ceiling and all this gold and all these like old swords and knives and guns it's beautiful in there so yeah then I'm like right get up to Princess Anne and I'm really I'm feeling emotional at this point because it's like a build up and I'm wick so I'm at the very end the very end of the line right and it's like four hours of waiting and didn't give us a glass of water didn't give us a little canapé I was thinking <laughs> you're gonna get canapés surely there's gonna be food and I didn't even get a glass of water so I ran in the toilets and I drank water from the tap in the toilets of Windsor Castle because I, <laughs> I was so parched and I was like I'm really nervous and I walked up to her and I was like, you know what? This is a really big moment. I'm really proud of myself because, you know, if I look at myself and me and Nikki as two young boys, you know, we were the wrong uns. We were from that nutty family that you didn't want to be around, like the council estate that, you know, who would, th- who would have thought that me and that boy, you're going to get, a, you know, an MBE from Princess Anne one day. And it was just this weird moment. And um, she was so lovely. She said, oh, so Joe, tell me, first thing I want to know have you finally recovered from all those lunges and burpees that you've done? And I thought it was really nice that she just had, took that moment to sort of, yeah, she made me feel quite relaxed about it and it was lovely. And I done my little bow and then I walked off with my little medal. Well, I'm very thrilled you are here because I want you to change my life. How can I help you? Well, you can help me. Well, I tell you, you can help me. I am of an age and I've never been interested in exercise and I've never really been very aware of food. So, uh, and the idea, and your new book sounds very enticing, because it says it can all be done in, in 15 minutes. Um, I've got 15 minutes. What is the one thing, what's the book called, and what's the one thing I've got to do at this stage in my life? Well, can to- I start by saying one thing? Yes. You've got great skin. Oh, you look, good. You look very oh. healthy, and, oh. you know, you've got, you're in, you're in good shape. You know, a lot of people are in a lot worse shape. They're, you know, you obviously, you're, you obviously eat well. You're not, like, overeating and being very greedy because you look quite slim, and, you know, for someone who hasn't exercised, I think you look very great and healthy. Well, so, that's the right thing to say, is yeah. the right answer. But the truth is, I do need help. I do know that. I mean, I want to lose 
I promised myself I'd lose a stone before Christmas. My idea was, I'd been on a low-carb diet before, right. that I'd lose, if I'm strict on the low-carb, no bread, rice, pasta, or potato, uh, only nothing, no food in your hands, you know, so nothing between meals, no crisps, no cakes, you can lose two pounds a week. My problem is I do that, and, oh, I do lose the stone, and then the next, you know, three months, I put it back on again. Yeah. So what do I need to do? And if I can do it in 15 minutes, I might give it a go. Right, so the book's called Feel Good in 15. And the premise around this book is 15-minute um, meals. So, you know, really quick recipes that you truly can make in 15 minutes. Um, and alongside that, there's workouts. There's, um, you know, night, and you might not be someone who wants to do HIIT training and strength training. but you, Well, you might not be into the high-intensity no, stuff. But there's some really nice mobility workouts there. So for your hips, for your shoulders and joints, you know, so there's some nice kind of content as there, there for someone who's not that into the high intensity stuff. And then alongside with that is the, um, the health hacks. And what I mean by health hacks is things like, um, you know, mindfulness, breathing, um, ice cold showers and ice cold dip dips, oh. if you like that, um, meditation, you know, gratitude list, you know, and, and also just little things like reaching out to someone, having a chat. You know? I can do the easy bits. The gratitude list, for example, I can do. Yeah. I, every night when I go to sleep, I count my blessings. Uh, I think through the day, I think of the best things that have happened. And then I count, literally, I go through, I start with my wife, then I have the cat, then I go through the children and their partners and my grandchildren. That's the easy bit. But that's because I'm lying in bed. The morning comes and my son has left for me weights, okay? Right. Including a dumbbell thing that, I, you know, I lift off the floor. Yeah, uh, And great. some little weights to lift up. And I think, well, this is not so interesting. I can manage the mindfulness thinking sweet thoughts, reading a poem, being quiet, looking at the sunshine, all that's easy. It's the tough stuff. Well, here's a question for you. How's your mental health? Like, how do you normally get on with your mind and your thoughts and feelings? Are you, are you quite level or do you have ups and downs? I think I'm reasonably level. Right, well, in that case, you've probably, you've probably not had that urge to kind of turn to exercise. I think a lot of people that, oh. you know, suffer with, you know, anxiety, depression, or even stress, like often turn to exercise is it's a, it's a coping mechanism isn't it so for me you know exercise has been that therapy it's something i love and i do and it's in my dna but you know if you're happy not doing it but the thing is but no, get, I, I know i have to do it because yeah. i'm getting older and i'm getting stiffer yeah you're, and it's like it's about joint health it's about uh, uh, mobility and last year i fell over do you know i mean when i was in ireland uh, recently i was mistaken in the street for being joe biden <laughs> and i'm five years younger than joe biden uh, and my wife said oh for god's sake this is happening now Stand up, man. Yeah, you know, well, you take a stride. It's about Stop shuffling along. And, you know, and I'm, I'm, I've fallen over. I've fallen over. Tripped over my own feet, fallen over. So I know I've got to do something. It, it, you can look, you can get through life without exercising, but you're not thriving. You know what I mean? You're not really energized and you're not like seizing the day. And, you know, because I, I want to be someone who is active and mobile and, you know, flexible. And it, it does take time, but you don't have to be doing um, really intense exercise. It could be a simple thing of, you know, a few bodyweight squats, you know, in the morning just to kind of keep the joints and the strength and the quads and your knees stable because, you know, you will find that you're going to fall. And when you fall on the wrong point, point of your body, you can break a hip and suddenly you're having a hip replacement. I know. And I've just... Well, I broke my arm. I broke my humerus in two places, knocked out a tooth. Really? Wow. Well, it's serious stuff. Yeah. It's just the trigger. I'm, I'm relying on you and on this book, which I haven't had to buy because you've kindly given it to me, to change my life, Joe. Well, listen, you've got to take the first step because, you know, that, oh. that's the thing. I can, I can lead you to water, but I can't make you drink, as they say. And so the book's there, the content's there, but you still have to put in the work, you know, planning your meals for the week. You know, who does cooking? Who, do you like cooking? Are you enjoying that? No. Nope. Right, Neither so. of us does cooking. You will find... Wait, what you, do you eat if no one cooks? You have this charming life that you're... Because you're so young and you're so fresh. It's touching to see you with your three children, this lovely marriage that now is working for you. It's all lovely. When you have been married, my wife and I, we met 55 years ago. We've been, she doesn't want to cook. She's cooked. Children, right. grandchildren, she's lost interest. I, I, I never could cook. We do... My signature dish is baked beans, which are good for you. I still eat baked beans. I love baked beans on toast, yeah. I, I, I like baked beans on toast, uh, but I've now discovered baked beans cold from the tin. There's a freshness. Oh, There's, no, yes. I can do that. Uh, so, but to be What's, serious, we basically put things in the microwave. We get microwave meals and put them in the microwave. Oh, you're breaking my heart now. Because, yeah. But I have got a steamer, and I do sometimes do steamed, I can do steamed broccoli. So I do sometimes do steamed broccoli. So seven nights a week, it's just microwave dinners, yeah? In and out, just in the mic, out the mic, that's it. Yeah, that's it. We wow. once did microwave Christmas. 
Uh, oh, micro, what, like a Christmas dinner in a, t- in like, in a, in a, in a little trays. Oh, and wow. the whole family did it. We all queued up by the microwave. It took about 15 seconds to cook each meal. It was all over by 10 past one. <laughs> That's hilarious. That r- ridiculous. Well, look, there's nothing wrong with the odd bit of processed food, but I mean, I wouldn't rely on it so much because, you know, you don't know. I mean, there's a lot of science now around like gut health and it links to the brain and, wow. you know, but look, it, if you're happy and, you, and you're lazy, you know, no. I'm not going to get you cooking, am I? I'm, I'm not going to convince you to cook, am I? Uh, no, but the fact I'm talking to you about it and the fact I'm going to actually take your book home is because I'm serious about it. So I've, I know I've got to make some effort myself. And your son that leaves the kettlebell out, do you know what he's really saying? Oh, he is. Do you know he's, what he's saying, though? Yeah, what's he saying? He's saying he loves you and he wants you to be fit oh. and strong. He's trying to take care of you, but he can't force you to lift it. You've got to do it. So he's, he's trying to tee you up and set you up he for is. the day, isn't he? Yes, he, he is. Cares about Bless you. his heart. He's left them in the house. Because you start thinking, oh, I don't want to see my dad falling over. I don't want to see him breaking his hip. So, yeah, look... But again, it doesn't matter what I say or what your son says or what anyone says, you've got to want to do it. It's got to be an internal thing. You've got to be intrinsically motivated. You've got to say, I want to be strong because I want to see, I want to be around for my grandkids. I want to be able to play and, you know, lift them up when they come around for a cuddle and stuff. And these things will suddenly be able to, you will stop being able to lift your kids up if you ain't picking up them kettlebells. Think of the kettlebells one of the grandkids. I right? say, so look, if I do a few of these, a few little deadlifts, a couple of little squats, that's me picking up my kid and, the, you know, my grandkid. And, and that's the kind of way to keep you fit, isn't it? Well, thank you for your inspiration. A couple of final questions to you. What's the first moment in your life that you thought, I am happy, I'm really happy? I've got to say, you know, for me, it's when I met Rosie, because before that, you know, I was lost. You know, you're sort of thinking, is this, is this it? Like, is this the right thing? And am I happy? And I was running away. I was running away from that relationship. But when I met Rosie, it kind of just all fell into place. And, you know, I was 30 at the time. And so people often say, you know, it happens when you fall in love, it can happen really quick. And suddenly you want to be with them. You want to live with them. You want kids. And so, yeah, that, that process from meeting Rosie to, you know, having Indy, we actually had Indy first and then we got married. So, you know, not necessarily traditional, but I, I needed that person, that bond, that, that connection of a child and the love that we had for that to really like believe in marriage almost because I wasn't modeled marriage. It was like, and even, you know, my brothers find it difficult to, to believe in the marriage thing because all we saw was separation and breaking up and who, who sticks together. Marriage doesn't work. And I love that you've been married 55 years because that again is a positive experience for me to see a role model who sticks together. Right. And where do you see yourself 40, 50 years from now? What will you be doing? What will the pair of you be doing with all those children? If you have five, you'll have so many grandchildren. If they all have five, you'll have 25 grandchildren. And then yeah. you'll have great-grandchildren. What will you, Joe Wicks, be doing? That'll be wild, won't it? Well, you know, I, one of my life's goals, and I, and I love that you've just said that because I haven't met many people that have been married that year, that, that long, that's quite rare, is to be happy and still be in, have that family unit because it's when you stay in, in a relationship when you're married, you know, you're demonstrating to your children you know, what love is and that stability and, and, and like commitment really is. And if you don't have that, you really find it hard to believe in marriage. You think, well, it's not going to work. What's the point? And you have this negative feeling. You never really connect and attach to someone. But when I had Indy and I married Rosie and I, I can see the impact that my love for Rosie has on my children, like I'm a role model. So I hope that we're married. I really hope we're still together and I hope that we're still having fun and that, yeah, we, we can enjoy being around our, our grandchildren. I think a, a real measure of success, and you might agree with this, that if you get to a certain age, like, like yourself, and you go, my kids still want to hang out with me, they ring me up to come around for the Sunday and they want to they spend a day with that. That's success because it means you've done a good job because they, they don't like think you suck and think you're the worst person on earth. They love you still. And so that is, is a measure of success. So I'm hoping it's me and Rosie, all my kids around and all the grandkids, and we're having Christmases together and you know, we're still um, sharing those moments together. Well, look, let's do this podcast again 40 years from now. Can I ask you one question? Yes. What's the secret to a long-lasting marriage? Because that's the longest... I've never met anyone that's been married this long. Marry somebody with very low expectations. (laughs) She won't be disappointed. Uh, Tolerance, good humour. And if you're the man, uh, always agreeing that you're in the wrong, basically, because you are, basically. (laughs) Say sorry. Say sorry and thank you and I love you on a regular basis, probably in that order. I do. I do think you've got some wisdom there. And what about kissing and cuddling? So I think kissing and cuddling is really important well, too. Well, it's been forced on us recently because we were staying at a hotel in Harrogate. I've been on a tour where the bed, and this is this hotel we were sent to, uh, booked by the management. Uh, it was supposed to be near the theatre. We couldn't find it anyway. Eventually we found it. The bed was very small, but also the mattress sloped down either side. And literally I got onto the bed and rolled off. Oh, so no. my wife got on the other side. She rolled off. So we spent the whole night 
clutching one another. We hadn't been so close in perhaps 30 years. That's it, lovely. It was I love quite that. exciting. Yeah, so maybe design a bed that has a V that dips in the middle and you just uh, yeah. you roll into each other every night. That's a nice idea. Yeah, exactly. I've got to keep holding hands. Yeah, I think that's important. Well, I'm so glad to have met you and I, I loved our chat and I think, yeah, you're, you're an example of someone that can be happy and have fun and laugh with someone after 55 years. That's amazing. So, Joe, thank you very much indeed for being here, for, for sharing, for being inspiring. Thank you, Thank Joe you so Wicks, much. for the Wicks inspiration. I've got the book. I've not got to live by the book. Well, I thought that was rather inspiring. Joe was the first Rosebud guest brave enough to give me some fitness advice. So thank you very much indeed to him. I'll start doing those burpees as soon as I've finished this recording. Next week, we've got something a bit different planned. It's almost Christmas. So we're releasing a bumper week of shows that we're calling our Rosebud Christmas Cracker Week. We'll be releasing episodes on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, so get ready for two extra helpings of Rosebud next week. And they're pretty special episodes too. The best news is, of course, that Rosebud is calorie-free, so even Joe Wicks will be happy. Before I go and get ready to do my plank for the morning, let's have one of your emails. We've heard from Louise Martin. Louise writes, My grandmother always served delicious homemade custard in a large bowl decorated with sweet peas on the Sunday lunch table. There was a beautiful pink sweet pea painted in the bottom of the bowl, and I knew when I could see that delightful flower peeking out that the custard was almost finished. I have the dish now, and it's one of my most treasured possessions. Oh, it's funny how one does remember those plates. In fact, I've got a mug from my childhood that has Noddy and Big Ears on it. And I still drink from it. We don't put it in the dishwasher, of course. I still drink from it when I need a bit of a a comfort pick-me-up. It's not a very big mug, but you can have a small cocoa in it. Oh, thanks so much for being in touch, Louise. Appreciate it. That's it for this week. I hope you're intrigued. Hope you'll join us again. That's me, Charles Brandreth. And this is Rosebud. Rosebud is produced by Harriet Jane, Artwork by Freya Betts and music by Phil Leppard.